with his disciples, and it was about midnight last night, uh, those years ago, that he was taken and then beaten and mocked and misused and abused all night long, and about three this afternoon uh, was when he actually died. So uh, we can think about those things, and this is a holy day to think about them. Uh, along with atonement, the most holy two days of the year. And we did not know that for many years, but now it's become quite clear that this is the most important day. Why wouldn't it be the holy day? Uh, But about the time we're having potluck will be the time he actually died. So let's bear that in mind. At least we're not out eating leavened bread and pizza today uh, like we used to. (laughs) We've learned something at least. And I want to put God first in everything we do and say and think uh, because we have to slay our idols. We have to put Him first in everything in our lives. And the biggest idol we have to put away, of course, is ourselves because it is our desires that make us make this an idol and that an idol and that an idol which makes us the biggest idol because we're putting things ahead of God ourselves. So... uh, I've got a couple I'm slaying. Uh, We've had some lawsuits going on here. I wasn't going to mention this, but I will uh, for some time because of the situation on the property and people trying to lie and cheat and steal and take it from God's purpose. They think they're in God's purpose and that God's happy with them, but I I, I totally disagree with them. But uh, I thought perhaps... I think erroneously that God might work through some lawyers, that he might use them to help us solve our problem. But uh, on review, God says that there's no justice in the land and that it's sick from the head to the foot. So the lawyers are sick and the judges are sick. And uh, I'm repenting myself of having used lawyers at all. We had to lawyer up, I guess, in one way to defend the lawsuit that uh, that was filed against us. But then we filed one on extortion. But everyone that we have uh, presented it to has not looked at it that way. Uh, in fact, we even contacted an older man, a very experienced prosecutor, and he's been on both sides of as a defense attorney, a prosecutor. And he said, under the court situation today, you do not have a case. Once you throw the Constitution out, we don't have a case because there are no more civil rights in America. The Constitution, uh, by our own president, was called another damn piece of paper. And, uh, and that was a Republican. And then the Democrats did even worse. So uh, there is no justice in the land. And the one deputy who showed a little favor toward us, we sent the information to him, and he did nothing. Uh, The judges have done nothing. So I am going to drop the lawsuit that we have filed tomorrow morning. We are not going to put lawyers ahead of God. God is our answer. Uh, to the hills, we, we sing it. To the hills I lift my eyes from whence comes my help. All my help comes from the Lord and on. And that's where our help's going to come from. I'm reminded of David uh, when he was in trouble. And he knew he was in trouble and God said, All right, 
I'll turn you over to these people, or I'll turn you over to these people, or you can depend on me. And David said, I'm in trouble all three ways, but I'm going to throw myself on your mercy. And uh, he lived. (laughs) He got punished, but he lived. And I, this morning, had a long talk with, well, I say myself, myself and God. And I decided that uh, lawyers weren't idle. I had put them ahead of God. He knows how to fix things. And our faith has to be in God alone. So I'll admit to you, I let, I, I let lawyers become an idol in that sense because I put them ahead of God's deliverance. And that will cease and desist. It's over. Done. So take that to God and ask Him for deliverance. You know, uh, I think that the timing still is correct, that I've sown those signs out of Scripture, uh, that this is the year when big things are going to happen. But then reflecting on some things from last night and and these lawyers, and uh, how can we expect God to bless us when we put things ahead of Him? So I am searching my life and everything in this congregation to see that we put God first. No idolatry. You know, Miriam and Aaron, well, they weren't Korah, but Miriam and Aaron decided that Moses wasn't using them right. That he was a sinner and he had married the wrong woman and that they needed to straighten Moses out and that uh, they weren't being used properly. Well... God kind of straightened it out. Leprosy straightens a lot of stuff out. And uh, we're in, we are entering a very dramatic time, and I think that we can see some very dramatic things from God. Ananias and Sapphira tried to steal land and houses when the apostles said, give them up so that everybody might have food. And it was land and property that was the problem that they put ahead of what the apostles said. And we got people here who are trying to take the land and property because they think they can use it better than the ones that God inspired to come find it and buy it in the first place. I think they're on very, very thin ice. And I think God will deal with it. And I'm going to call out to the highest court there is, the court in heaven, and put aside any other possible answers and leave it in God's hands. I think he's big enough. I really do. If he could form the heavens and the earth and make elephants and squirrels, I'm on his side. And he made us, fashioned us with his own hands. And I think he can take care of us. So that's where I am. Is this service over? (laughs) I didn't mean to say all that, but... People in the past have said, well, there's, there's no transparency. You don't tell us what's going on. Well, all right, you know what's going on, so shut up. <laughs> I'm just kidding, of course. Uh, but I saw some nods, and I think you're with me on that. God is, God is our protector. He's our answer. But now I've said it, I can't take it back, can I? (laughs) 
No, this is our course. This is where we're headed. Anyway, that wasn't the sermon. Uh, we're having a, a dinner Wednesday evening. At least that's our plan. Uh, if we live that long. Uh, please sign up to bring all the fix in for the dinner. The main course, the prime rib, has been provided. Uh, where is that sign-up list, Charnel? You can do it after services, but so we don't have a lot of duplication. You know, some salad, some dessert, some whatever. I, that's that's y'all's business, not mine. So I gave you the message I was supposed to. I'll leave it at that. So, out on the phone lines, I mentioned yesterday, but we'll have uh, services at 6 in the evening throughout the rest of this week. 6 o'clock in the evening, our time here. So, there's hopefully no confusion on that. Now, we started into a series yesterday that uh, I think God inspired, because I had no clue what I was going to talk about this Passover and the day before these things started coming to mind and suddenly expanded from a sermon into what's going to take several. Uh, But we went, first of all, to the Song of Songs, the superlative ultimate of songs. And I went ahead and dived in there because I wanted to cover that area about Christ coming to His bride in the springtime when the turtle doves are singing and the plants are putting out their shoots and so on. And we know in Malachi 3, which we read recently, that he will suddenly come to his temple. So he has everything planned out. Maybe some things would have happened last night, but we had some difficulties that I think needed repented of, and I'm trying to do my part on that and remove any idol I can from in front of God so that he can do his thing. But I also reminded myself that even in Mitzrayim, Nothing big happened during the Passover service. Uh, They were told to be ready to go, and then at midnight a cry came, so it wasn't Passover service where a change came. It was at midnight, and God delivered them out of there. Then if you fast forward to uh, Joshua and crossing the Red Sea, uh, other than the Red Sea parting, (laughs) which is a pretty big deal, But, I mean, it didn't have to do with deliverance from their enemies and so on, except to scare their enemies. Uh, But they marched round and round, and it wasn't until the seventh day that anything really dramatic happened. And then the walls of Jericho fell. Of course, uh, Christ's Passover, uh, nothing really happened at the Passover service either, but he was taken, and they began to beat him and everything that night, Uh, But the the biggest thing of the day was his death and sacrifice at about 3 p.m. that next day. So all I'm saying is, even in the dramatic Passovers, God has done things at different times and in different ways uh, to get what he wanted done. So uh, this may yet be a transition year. It may yet be that some important things happen. But he told us to turn to him with all our hearts and to get rid of any of our idols that come between us and him. And I discovered I might have had an idol or two that I needed to deal with. I mean, just in the last 24 hours. So, uh, you look through your life. 
Remember Achan there at Jericho? That was at Passover time. There was one sinner in all of Israel that stole some things when they'd been told to leave all the spoils and the booty alone. And trouble came on all Israel because of that one man's sin. So do not think that your sin and mine don't have an effect on all of us. And that's exactly the way I have approached what I have come to feel and think and know to be the truth in the last 24 hours is that I need to be sure there's nothing between me and God. And each of you needs to do the same. Uh, because if God has to root us out, that can be pretty painful. It's better to root it out ourselves. Uh, and and if he has a schedule, and he does, there in the Psalms it says the set time has come. I don't know, he didn't give a date or an hour, but the set time has come to bless Jerusalem, or Zion, I think it says. And uh, he will have his way. And if you and I get in his way, we may get sacrificed. Okay? And I don't want any of us in his way. I was so encouraged and strengthened yesterday to see five young people who have decided to go God's way and to put him first. And some others who are making some changes as well, not just those five. And it is so encouraging. And, you know, <laughs> as small and beleaguered and mocked and hated as we are throughout the church and here, to me it's almost like opening the doors of heaven and the former and latter rains come to have that much increase in one day. <laughs> That's phenomenal. We haven't had that before. Not like that. So maybe God's saying, you know, you're kind of heading the right direction. Now finish the job and maybe I can do more. This, this is very meaningful to me. I barely made it through those two prayers last night. <laughs> and I'm barely making it right now. This is coming from 23 years of this. Of expectancy and hoping and praying and trying to get things right. And if we're on the cusp of it happening, I don't want us preventing it. There, You know, there's lots of rocks and stones around here on these mountains. God said, if I have to, I can raise up stones. Stones are not necessarily any hard, harder-headed than Israelites. I want him to use us. I want him to use you and me. But we've got to be usable. So let's do everything we can to be usable. In preparing the bride, he said there in Joel 2, and I've been over it several times, he says this is so serious that even if you've got a marriage plan, put it away and focus on this. And when you get your focus right, I will straighten it out and I will bless you. He wants that focus to be on him so much that romance, 
human marriage is nothing compared to the marriage of Christ and what we need to be in order to qualify to be his bride, and that's to be a wholehearted bride. He will accept nothing less. He doesn't want to compromise marriage. He doesn't want a woman that's three-quarters faithful to him or seven-eighths faithful. He wants true blue, through and through. Absolute, total faithfulness to him and his way and how his household is to be run. We can't run his household, and we try. That's not the wife's job. He will run his household, and he will not live with a brawling woman. And if he thinks that you and I will not be totally, completely faithful to him, we will not be included. He can call some in at the eleventh hour. If we don't have the wedding garment on, he says kick him out in the street and invite anybody in to take the place of those who are self-righteous and think they ought to be there. There's not one of us that even begins to deserve to be the bride of Almighty Christ. Not one. There is none righteous. No, not one. It's going to take a lot of grace, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of mercy, and a lot of commitment by us to at least be doing everything we possibly can to get lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, covetousness, adultery, fornication, Sabbath-breaking out of our lives and serve Him. You know, I really don't have too much trouble with God's rules. There's only... There's only ten, really, that give me a problem. Just the first ten. And I have problems with every one of them. Because of my nature. So, we got work to do. And I, you know, when I said that the other day, I threw my pen up in the air and I said, when are we going to get it? When are we going to get it? Well, alright, I'm trying to get it. And I'm trying to get rid of the lawyer's that might be in God's way. Or whatever else is in God's way. It has to go. He is first. He is foremost. He is everything. And if He made us, I'm sure He can deliver us. I just, I know that. Will He find faith on the earth? I hope He finds some here. Yeah, but we need to do this and we need to do that. No, God can save us. I don't want to hear any more of that. I don't want any alternative medicine. <laughs> I want our healer to heal us and help us and deliver us. Let's go to Ephesians 4. I wasn't going to go quite this far back in here, but there's a lot here that we need as those who would be the bride of Christ and what He expects of us. And it'll get down before I'm done here in this context to showing you that the Song of Solomon really is about Him. But I want to back up a little bit and uh, see some of the things he says about his future wife. Because everything in this New Testament was written to those candidates of the 144,000 firstfruits who are to be Christ's wife. And 
we need to know what he expects of us as a bride. As I said, it, it all ties together because he doesn't want a seven-eighths faithful wife. That's well, not what he's after. So let's go to Ephesians 4 and pick it up in verse 24. Well, 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and, what, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Not our own brand of religion, not our own brand of holiness, but according to God's definition. And we had five baptized yesterday who began a new life, a new man. The old man was supposed to be washed away and a new man starting. And come Passover, we should be in the same place. We examine ourselves ahead of time and see how much of the old man is there, how much of the old human carnal way of thinking. And we are supposed to use that examination period to examine and find out what is wrong, then ask God's forgiveness, and then realizing that we continue to put the sin out of our lives. And that is the big focus is getting rid of the sin. That which is puffed up, which is vain, which is egocentric, so we eat flatbread. And instead of puffed up with yeast, or whatever leavening was used, I suspect that the Israelites carried their leavening with them out of Egypt. The problem was they didn't have time to let it rise overnight. They were going to be walking out of there. doesn't mean they didn't take it with them. They needed it. Uh, Needed, K-N-E-A-D-E-D, or N-E-E-D-E-D, I meant. Uh, It was going to go ahead and get risen, and they were going to cook it the next day or the next night. So let's understand the principle It is that which is puffed up, which represents sin for just a little while. But there's a scripture in the New Testament that says righteousness going throughout the loaf is good. Yeast has a good connotation except for seven days. Righteousness should permeate and reach throughout all of us. So yeast isn't a bad thing. 300 and... 48 days out of the year, just for seven. And that's only because vanity, ego, and pride is the swelling up of the vanity of the mind. And the technicalities of yeast are really neither here nor there. We've got to see the forest, not just the trees. Put sin out. We can't get so hung up on a technicality that we forget to put our sin out. And then our own mind becomes our idol. Because we're smart. You know what? I thought about that this morning. Every, almost every, I'll say every, but I can't think of any exception at the moment. Everyone that the church considered a scholar, or everyone around Pasadena that considered himself a scholar, whether anybody else did or not, almost invariably went the wrong way and went out and got sidetracked because of the vanity of their own mind, the leavening in their mind of thinking that, boy, I've, I'm smart and I can figure out all the answers 
And Herbert Armstrong, well, you know, he isn't really educated or whatever. You know what part of my job is? If God sees it through, it's to restore all things. And I trust Him to give me the right answers. Not somebody else. And I am not a scholar. But I try to see the truth and the right principles. Now, if I don't diligently obey, God may not give me the job after all, and it doesn't matter. That's His business. But He has restored an awful lot of things here. You have to admit that. Now, how many exceptions are to that? That we may still have some things to learn. I don't doubt that in the least, because I learn new things all the time. You're hearing them. I said things yesterday I'd never thought of before that fit the story. I asked for God's inspiration and put His words out my mouth. And I believe he does because sometimes I go in and pray right after a sermon and thank him and say, where did that come from? It had to come from you. I'd have never thought it. Now, either God inspires what we're learning here or he doesn't. And if you don't think he is, then go away. Find somebody where God is speaking. So we're to put on the new man and not think like we used to think, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, wherefore putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be you angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. There we are instructed that a bride of Christ will get over their anger before sundown. So you need to time it so you don't get angry right after sundown and give yourself 24 hours of leniency to be mad. You know, pity you if you get mad, fly off the handle three minutes before sundown. Man, that's pretty quick repentance there. But he says don't hold your anger. Get rid of it. God gets angry in righteousness, but his anger is short-lived. He does not hold his wrath forever. Now, he's held it with us for 30-some years because he's been expecting us to repent, and we won't do it. So if we just get the job done, his anger will go away, and he'll smile on us. So I hope I made a right step in slaying an idol or two myself. So if you'll slay a few, uh, maybe we'll be okay. How many did Elijah slay? 450 prophets of Baal. <laughs> uh, get your sword out. Go to work on your idols, whatever they might be. Neither give place to the devil. Don't give him any opportunity to disrupt, to divide, to upset, to frustrate. Uh, God hates that. Don't give him an opportunity because we are truly fighting a spiritual war and Satan will do anything he can to disrupt anything he can disrupt. And don't think he won't have his hand in it. Let him that stole steal no more, but let him rather labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needs. So he says, work and earn instead of 
taking and stealing, and then have something for someone else. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. Corrupt communication means backbiting, uh, gossiping, false accusations, wild uh, false uh, imaginations. Read Proverbs 6. It gives a list of seven things that are abominable to God, and that's one of them. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. And if I made lawyers an idol and put them ahead of God, I was grieving the Spirit of God, because that's the first and most important command. Don't grieve God's Spirit. Okay, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. No maneuvering, no misusing, no uh, manipulating, no using people against themselves and against you. God isn't going to have a marriage through eternity that has bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice. He loves us all, and He gave His Son for the whole world, every individual. But if there's somebody that won't turn loose of those things in verse 31, they will be burned up and forgotten eternally. Because God will not have that in the universe. It started when Satan said, you know, I'm a pretty handsome fellow. And uh, not only that, I'm quite competent. Oh, I'm good. In fact, I think I can probably do better than God. I started this whole mess. Here we are. Some think they can do better than Daryl. Well, maybe you could. Maybe Miriam and Aaron could have done a better job than Moses. But that wasn't the point. God said, I'm going to use Moses. And when Moses says, don't use me, I can't talk right, he says, okay, I'm going to use you anyway, but he can talk for you. I picked you, now go do the job. Now, if he wants to remove me, he can do it. I may not say another word. He can strike me dead right now. It's easy. No problem for him. Everything I say isn't right. Everything I do isn't right. That's why I'm telling you today, I made a mistake and I'm repenting. I'm trying to set the example for you to do the same thing with whatever you need to. And you can probably find something in verse 31 if nowhere else. Instead of that then, be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. We came out of last night forgiven, cleansed before God through the blood of Christ. And I woke up this morning finding I still had an idol, breaking the first commandment, still sinning. Well, first day didn't start off too good. 
but I'm trying to fix it. Be you therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love. How many times did he say last night in John 13 through 17 to love one another? Over and over and over. If you'll be my friend, love one another. If you'll be my disciples, love one another. If you will enter to life, love one another. By this shall me men know whether you are my disciples, if you love one another. Love does not produce the works of the flesh, but the fruits of the Spirit. Kind, tender-hearted, and loving. So walk in love like He did to us, and has given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Do you really think that Christ is sitting on His throne today, talking to the Father and saying, you know, I really served the world. I went down there and I served everybody. I died for everybody. Man, I'm good. I, I'm the greatest servant of all. I'm the greatest servant of all time. I can't picture him doing that. He's the one that said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Don't even acknowledge yourself the service that you perform. Don't even acknowledge it. That way it can't have any strings. And you can't be and say, well, yeah, yeah, you know what I did for you? Now what are you going to do for me? Or are you going to acknowledge what a great servant I am? And if you don't, I'm going to tell you about it until you do. I'm going to brag about all my service. I don't think Christ is doing that. I really don't. I think he's truly meek and truly humble. And he's thankful for what he did. And his father is thankful. And I am certainly thankful for what he did for me and for you. And that's what Paul's trying to tell, get across to us. It was a sweet-smelling savor. But you know, he says that we're to build treasure in heaven. But if we brag or try to get people to acknowledge how much service we perform, it all falls out of our treasure house in heaven. It isn't treasure anymore. It's self-righteousness. That was, what the, that was the problem with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Don't I give great offerings? Don't I pray in the street? Don't I do this? Don't I... Look at me, everybody. I am such a wonderful servant. Well, they took their mother's house, but, you know. And Christ said, you're white and sepulchers. That's not righteousness at all. Yeah, the service might have helped somebody. The big offerings you gave may have helped the church. But it did not count to you for righteousness because you were proud of it and wanted everybody to know about it. So it was worthless in spiritual value. And spiritual value is all that matters to you and me because we're going to die. And if there's not some spiritual value there for God to say, yeah, I, I, I have some treasure in, in here for that one. Bring them back here and let me give them the treasure and the crown. 
He wants to do that. It's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He's not against us. He's not angry with us. Well, to some degree, because of our sins. But he loves us. He just doesn't love our sins. And we need to make it easier for him to love us and to accept us and to give us the gift of eternal life. So blowing our own horn, I mean, you know, we don't think of it that way. I'm not blowing my own horn. I'm just letting people know that, hey, I serve. How big a horn you got? Is it just your little mouth or is it a great big trumpet? Same effect as far as God's concerned. It destroys all the value of all the service you did. And that makes it worthless. So let's serve without our right hand, knowing what our left hand is doing, out of a willing heart, but without a string of our own righteousness attached to jerk when we feel like it. Walk in love as Christ has loved us and has given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. That was a sweet-smelling savor to the Father when Christ unloaded Himself and gave all for us. And we have to do the same. And then we have to be careful that it was not done for our own approval or the approval of others, which is self-righteousness instead of God's righteousness. I really don't believe at all that Christ is up there telling the Father how great He was. I just don't think that's Him. And it shouldn't be us. Going on in verse 3, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become saints. Covetousness is kind of a strange word. Don't, don't covet that which is your neighbor's. The word simply means in synonyms, don't desire, don't want. Don't have any desire for or any want for your neighbor's car or his house or his wife. Because if you want them or desire them, that's covetousness. And covetousness, Colossians 2 says, is idolatry. So the desires of the flesh that we sometimes are willing to uh, justify in our own minds and say, well, that's not really a sin. Well, if it's a wrong want or a wrong desire of something that is illegal for you, it's idolatry. Plain and simple. So he mentions fornication and uncleanness along with covetousness. Let it not be once named among you as become saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking, or the wrong kind of jesting in that sense, or joking, which are not proper, but rather giving of thanks. Our whole overall attitude should be giving of thanks. Thankfulness to God for all the multitudinous things He's done for us. For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, covetous and idolatry of the same, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Not going to be there. It says the same thing in Revelation 22, if you need to summarize. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. 
Be not you therefore partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the eternal. Walk as children of light. I said, I think just yesterday, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. God has given us light in a time of great darkness of this earth, a light of knowing what He is going to do, where He's going to do it, and pretty much when He's going to do it, and how He's going to do it. You know how many people on this earth know that and see that light? Easily less than 100 out of 7 billion. And we were walking in darkness until God began to show us these things. We're the children of light, and He wants us on a hill in Zion as a light to the world. Let's get there. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable to the eternal. Prove it. Show Him. And have no fellowship with the unfaithful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. You see the things of the world and people in the world... Stay away from it, for the most part. Now, Christ did occasionally eat with the Pharisees and, and uh, have a certain amount of intermixing on a social level with those around him. But he did not hobnob and run with the world on a daily basis and come to think the way they thought, or he would have been in trouble. <laughs> most of his communion was with the Father and with his disciples, and then he spoke to the world who came to him. But he did not continually uh, hit the bar with the boys. He, he wasn't of the world and in the world with the world in that sense. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever does make manifest is light. God will bring it out. Wherefore, he says, Awake you that sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. There's a good one for us during these days of unleavened bread to pray about. That he show us if there are things in our hearts and minds that are preventing him from blessing us. Ask him to show. I did. And he gave me a handful. You do the same. Maybe we can get this cleaned up where God can bless us. I certainly hope so. That's what I want. I'm tired of being denied, ignored, and cursed by God for being a seven-eighths bride, if I even got that high. But you know what I say, what I'm saying based on the Laodicean attitude, which is not even halfway there. Well, lukewarm's kind of halfway there. That's not good enough. Wherefore he says, Awake you that sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. What about the ten virgins? Half slept, slumbered. He says here, If you're asleep, wake up. See then that you walk circumspectly, carefully where you step, not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Isn't that Joel too? Use the time properly because the days are evil and God is about to bring down plagues 
and death and destruction on the whole world. These days are evil. And we need to be getting as close to God as we can so that He will not destroy us with the rest of the evil. Wherefore, be you not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Eternal is. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Filled with wine doesn't really accomplish a whole lot. Filled with the Spirit is good. Doesn't mean you can't drink wine. But you don't have to drink the whole wineskin. I mean, we're told even in your holy days we can have strong drink and so on. God promotes alcohol throughout the Bible. But He promotes moderation of the use of it. Food to everything, except that which is not legal at all. But be sure you got the right balance. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the eternal. I've often said we tend to listen to secular music a whole lot more than we do to God's music. Of course, God's music isn't all around us, and that's kind of difficult, but uh, the Psalms of David, even if you're not put to music, you could be reading them, and you're reading music there. Is it godly or is it ungodly? Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, uh, Emmanuel the Christ. Now he gets into marriage. Now he's, he's been talking about qualities that God's bride needs to have and attitudes they need to have and attitudes they shouldn't have. And I thought it good to go over this in leading up to what he's about to start saying now. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, he opens this section here about husband and wife relationships primarily, church-wise as well, but uh, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, a lot of men get the feeling that they're the head honcho, me big chief, you squaw, and uh, that they should be preeminent and predominant and overbearing and tell the wife everything she's to do. But he opens the subject here by saying you submit to each other. And anybody that's in a halfway decent marriage relationship realizes that there's give on both sides. Herbert Armstrong used to say Christianity boils down to give. He would sum it up that way. The love of God is a give way. And if we're willing to give to each other as friends, as brothers in Christ, and as mates, then we can get along better because there's some give and take both ways. We don't always have to have our own way. And these rednecks that think they're in charge and you'd better submit and do everything I say are wrong. Uh, and so they need to submit to their wives and the wives need to submit to them. We're equals in Christ, but God put one in charge. And we'll see what God has to say about how that man handles that responsibility. I've said many times in the church, we told men that you're supposed to be the leader and be in charge, and he had no training whatsoever in how to do that, so he picked up a two before and said, I'm in charge. 
And that was his form of leadership because that's all he understood. He didn't know how to be a leader, but he was told he should be one, so shape up woman or die. Well, not quite that extent, usually. So he says, you've got to submit one to another. Then he says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the eternal. He immediately makes a comparison that a woman is to submit to her husband in the same way she would to Christ. Now there's your first hint that a human marriage is a type of Christ's marriage to the church. And he wants us to be in total submission to him in our attitude. Now with him, he is a perfect husband. He has no problems whatsoever. Except the woman. <laughs> except us. But he has no person he has no problems of his own. So he can say, I want my wife to totally submit to me because he knows that everything he requires of her is going to be righteous and fair and good and proper and nothing out of line whatsoever. So she should have no trouble committing to total submission. Now, you girls have got a different problem. You don't have a perfect husband. Sorry to bust your bubble, girls, but that's a fact. And submitting to him is often very difficult. And sometimes there are some terrible mismatches when people marry. The woman might be well-educated. She might have 20, 30, 40 points IQ higher than his. She might be more capable and more competent in her capacity to accomplish. And if you marry that way, it's awful hard for her to submit to incompetency and low intelligence. Uh, you see a problem there at all? <laughs> that can become difficult when there are mismatches. And they happen. But the Word of God is the same. It just creates more work for you. You know? It creates more work for you. But a wife is supposed to submit herself to him regardless. Mismatch or not, they're married. And they're to become one flesh. And just because it's more difficult, hey, you're the one that married. So fix it. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. So he puts the husband in charge, in type, in the same way that he is in charge over the church. That is an incredible responsibility. We'll see what he has more to say about it here in a moment. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. In everything. Those are hard words. There is no area of life, no subject, that is not included in that. That a wife is to submit to her husband. Now, if you marry an unconverted mate you have immediately created all kinds of problems for yourself. 
Because how are you going to submit to a heathen? <laughs> when you have to put God first. That's why he says, do not marry somebody who is not of the faith. That is an explicit order from Christ himself delivered by Paul. Do not do it. And I've seen a lot of people do it in the church. And I've never seen it work in the way that it ought to work. It generally ends in divorce or bitter disappointment and frustration and uh, ultimately failure. Because you can't put new wine in old wineskins and so on and so forth. It just doesn't work. I mean, it's hard enough for two human beings to get along with each other if they agree on religion. And if they don't agree on religion, that's strike three. Sorry. So let's take this seriously, ladies. Submit to your own husband as to the eternal in everything. All right, that's a big pill to swallow. I understand that. But it's righteousness. It's of God. Now, you might can make things work fairly well if you disagree on religion or politics or whatever. You might be able to get past some of that and still have a pretty good marriage. But it'll never be what God intended it to be on a spiritual level because... Everybody's just not on the same page. Okay. Then it turns to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He died for the church. He was willing to do anything for his bride, including die for her. So before you grab your two before and say, I'm in charge, consider Christ, who in every respect did the right thing and set the right example for his wife to be. He did everything right. He loved her. He cherished her. He was kind to her. He is merciful and forgiving to her. He does not hold his anger against her. He's willing to love her with all his heart. And he expects the same back from her. So he's setting the example to us to love us with all his heart by willing to say, Honey, I'll die for you. And then doing it. Not just words. He did it. I'd do anything for you. We got songs about it. I'd swim the widest ocean, climb the highest mountain. I'll love you till the twelfth of never, and that's a long, long time. I could think of a hundred songs right off the top about all our pledges of what we're going to do that we don't and fall short of. Yes, our, our goals, our purposes. The little butterflies in our heart said we'd do all those things. But life is reality, and life is not all that, and we all fall short of the mark of what we intended to do. I intended when I married Marla to be everything I could be to her and give her everything I could and make her happy and, and, and do everything I possibly could. And you know, I failed her a lot of times. 
I didn't live up to my ideals. I wasn't what I wanted to be. Can't do much about it now. A living dog's better than a dead lion. <laughs> you know? Love her like Christ loves the church. Do anything for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. He gave us his word to study, to read, the instruction book on how to be a good wife. That's what this book is, how to be a good wife, how to prepare yourself as a bride of Christ. That's all it's about. It's written to the church. Verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, as we age physically, we come to have different kinds of spots and wrinkles and sags and bags, and, and uh, physically we kind of go downhill after a certain point. And we just aren't what we used to be. Inevitable, you know, gravity is pretty powerful stuff. You know what Christ wants? He wants us to be as a young virgin. How many scriptures are there in the Old Testament? I want you presented as a chaste virgin, Paul said to uh, the Corinthian church. Christ says, a virgin will conceive and bring me forth. I will marry the virgin that I choose out of the scattered church. What does he tell us? He says... You're old and decrepit and crippled and blind and deaf and ugly. I'm going to give you deer legs and the blind will see and the deaf will hear. He's going to restore us. He doesn't want us spotted and wrinkled and old. He wants us young and vibrant and loving <laughs> in attitude. And he may even give us some of that physically as a light to the world that, you know, God can fix things. God can fix things. So he wants a spotless young bride. You know Christ isn't old? He's not old. He doesn't age. Lived forever and he's still young. So he wants us to live forever young. A glorious church. I mean, he can, at the resurrection, there's, there's a lot of people that are in their graves now that died old, wrinkled, fat, ugly, whatever, physically, totally burned up, washed out, amputated, you know, burned in fire. He can fix all that and give us a glorious body and a glorious mind. And that's what he wants to do. So he wants us to grow and overcome so they can say, yeah, there's a good attitude. I'm going to glorify that one. I'm going to make that one just like I want her. Make him have that emotion, brethren. We have to do what we can to ensure that he'll say, yeah, that's a willing, serving attitude. That's a ready mind. 
Here am I, said Samuel. Here am I. What do you want? Anything. You're my husband. I'll do anything for you. I submit. I worship you. And we will worship him. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. You don't hate your flesh. You take good care of it. If it gets a little warm, you want the air on. If it gets a little hot, you want the cool on. If it gets a little hungry, you want the nose bag on. If it gets a little tired, you want to sit down and rest. If you cut yourself, you say, Ow! That was stupid. Now, there are people who cut themselves. There are people who kill themselves. That doesn't mean they hated their own flesh. It means Satan took advantage of them and turned them against themselves. But we like to take care of ourselves. You know, I've used this analogy. When I shave with a razor, I try to be careful where that blade goes. And I don't like blood running all down my neck. I like to try to be careful. And I try not to get it close to my eye and tear my eye, cut my eyeball out with a little razor blade. Because I've come close a few times. Getting after it, you know, I'm in a hurry. Cut my own eye? I don't think so. So he says, the way you want your body and yourself taken care of is the way you ought to take care of that woman. So you gals had a big pill to swallow. Now, we got one, guys. It's got to be both ways. That's why he says, before he ever gets to her role and his role, submit yourselves one to another. Now, let's move on here. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So he's saying the way you treat each other as husband and wife is the way that our relationship with Christ should be. He's made us members of his... What is one flesh or one spirit? He wants to marry us at atonement and we become at one with him. He says a husband and a wife, when they get married, are no longer two, but they're one flesh. And they should be emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically one. And that sex act is what is a most powerful force used properly in causing them to come together and be one in every way. Because it relieves a lot of emotional stress and helps them to feel loving and kind to each other. And even in that, a man needs to be careful to be sure that his wife is taken care of. There are a lot of male chauvinist pigs who just simply want satisfaction and sleep. And they don't believe in caressing and loving and foreplay and, and making the wife feel wanted, needed, loved instead of just used. And many, many women have said, I'd rather just be held 
than go to the main act. I'd rather just feel loved and cared for than go there because I know it's all done in selfishness. Now, you want your self taken care of, you better take care of her. Pig. (laughs) You know? Take care of her the way you take care of your flesh. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. A lot of guys won't. Always comparing his wife to his mother. She hates that. I have Well, I've never met one that didn't. You're just like your mother. That'll start a fight now. Even if she is just like her mother. She still doesn't want to hear it. She wants to be her. She wants to be different. And shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now, joined means in every way, and it means physically in a sex relationship as well. Now, read the next verse. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. The world does not understand this. They do not grasp the missing dimension in sex, as Herbert Armstrong tried to explain to a fairly small audience. That the sex act is, and marriage is a type of Christ and the church. The only thing he's been discussing here is marital relationships, from spiritual to physical. That's all he's talking about. And he said that marriage is a type of Christ and the church. That's why he created marriage. was so that it could reflect what it will be between he and his bride eternally. Does that make it clearer why fornication and adultery and emotional feelings, which are a dry affair, a desire is maybe not quite as bad as the actual act. It doesn't have quite as much repercussion on humans. But Christ said, if you even look on a woman to want her, and she's somebody else's, that's covetousness and idolatry. That's an idol. Because marriage is such a sacrosanct thing that any emotion, any feeling, any actual act outside that marriage is sin and has to be repented of. There will be no sin in Christ's marriage. He is perfect and He is going to change and glorify His bride and make her perfect. And she will never have any feelings outside Him. They've already faced that in the kingdom of God. That wasn't a physical act of adultery or even, in that sense, a mental one. But it was unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness can be in many different fields. But Satan let himself become unfaithful in thought to those he was subject to. 
And that unfaithfulness led to every bit of misery you see around you today in this whole wide world. Yeah, humans had human nature, but it had not been let out of the box yet until he tempted them and caused them to sin. That's why the Azazel is sent out into the wilderness in solitary confinement. Because Satan bears the guilt for our sin. Christ was the goat that was killed as a payment for our sin. But you will find nothing in Scripture anywhere that Christ is ever sent out into solitary confinement. Except for three days. Just three days when he was dead. And then he had no consciousness of being solitary. Who is sent into the wilderness in solitary confinement? Read Revelation 20. God will send Christ to bind him and throw him into outer darkness into solitary confinement. That's Satan. That's not Christ. Both those goats do not picture uh, Christ. Day of Atonement pictures him becoming at one with his bride. Not solitary confinement. Those two goats were sent out on atonement. He's not going to be in solitary confinement at any, t- at any time. He's going to raise us up at the resurrection, take us up for a honeymoon, bring us back down with him to uh, finish defeating the rest of his enemies. And Jude says he, we will be ever with him, as Thessalonians, one of the two. Never leave his side again. There is no possibility of him having any typology of the Azazel. Atonement in which that was done was a picture of a marriage not being sent off as a bachelor. People read some Greek, they read some, well, be Hebrew, they read a little of this, and they come up with these really stupid analogies that don't fit the rest of the Scripture. Sorry. How did it get there? Well, right here, because they're joined as one. They become one. And it's speaking of Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, just as Christ loved her with all his heart, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. When it says you submit to him as you do to Christ, now we're to call no man reverend. But she is to have the same type of attitude toward him that she has to Christ and that he ought to have to Christ. So it's not worship per se, and that might not be the exact best translation of that, but respect, uh, submit, love, be cooperative with, and almost on the level of reverence because that is our attitude toward Christ and you should have the same attitude toward Him that you have to Christ. So marriage... And everything in marriage is a type of Christ and his bride. 
Now that's a good introduction that took all day to, to get through. But when we go back to the Song of Songs, uh, then it fits that that whole thing is about Christ and the church. And you can see it more clearly once you understand that other scriptures say that so. I speak of a great mystery of Christ and the church in a marriage relationship. Well, that's enough then for today.